Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, Republicans defeating Trump. Yes, you heard me right. The Lincoln Project is a team-up of disgusted never-Trumpers. They're making a difference to the presidential election and former Republican strategist Steve Schmidt is here to tell us all about it. Plus, cancel culture. Is it real? Is it a fiction of the political right or a failing of the right on left? Can you even get cancelled for even saying cancel culture? All this and more on today's Bunker. Hello, we hope you enjoyed last week's Zoom live stream with Romaniacs for Patreon backers. If you missed it, there's video and audio up on our Patreon site to sign up to watch, listen and get our splendid Bunker merchandise too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Let's meet the panel. Hello to comedian, writer, ex-New Labour spin doctor, editor of the Londoner Diary in the Evening Standard and host on Times Radio, Asia Hazarika. Hello, Asia. How are you doing? Hello, Andrew. Hello, hello. How's things? You all right? Yes, all right. Um, just gearing up now that we've gearing up for uh, face masks and Brexit. It's really it's what a time to be alive. How are you going to do a, a radio show on Times Radio with a face mask on? It's going to be very muffled. Might improve it, to be Could, honest. It might, might, might do. Uh, so the government this week have launched their latest Get Ready for Brexit advertising campaign, calling on people to seize opportunities. Uh, amongst them seems to be opportunities to queue. What opportunities are you seeing lying ahead from uh, the forthcoming erection of barriers? I'm seeing a big opportunity for a massive lorry park in um, Ashford. <laughs> I'm seeing a massive opportunity. If you want to like, like do like a bacon sandwich stall and like do teas and coffees in Ashford, that is, the, that is the business opportunity that, that lies ahead. I mean, look, it's, it, to me, it looks like it's it's really hideously underprepared. Who knew? And it's not just, you know, well, I would say that anyway, as an arch remainer, Liz Truss, you know, who's mm-hmm. the poster girl for Brexit, wrote a letter this week that got leaked saying that, you know, she was very worried about how underprepared um, things were. And I actually spoke to the former UK border chief on my Times radio show on Sunday. And even though he was trying to put a positive spin, he, in the end, conceded that he was really worried about the timescale and how much needed to be done in terms of infrastructure. So, you know, this is going to be really hard and it would have been hard anyway. But with the pandemic, it's a it's 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 a perfect storm. Still, bacon sandwiches, though, not all bad. Um, also, <laughs> I know, as, a, as a, someone who worked for Ed Miliband, I'm slightly scarred by bacon sandwiches. Oh, God, of course, yes. <laughs> also back on the bunker. And finally, back in the UK, we have Alex Andreo. Hey, Alex, how are you doing? I'm all right. A little bit freaked out by London. <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, encountered the exciting new advertising campaign with Check, Change, Go and the obligatory traffic lights yet? I, I have not, I have to say, because I've been forced to quarantine for two weeks, even though I come from a country with virtually zero COVID. Well, I'm sure that's going to be good for the soul at at, at the very least. Um, (laughs) As I mentioned at the top of the show, our guest today is Steve Schmidt, a communications and public affairs strategist who's worked on numerous Republican political campaigns, including those of President George W. Bush, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arizona Senator John McCain. He's currently working for the Lincoln Project Super PAC of ex-Republicans dedicated to ending the presidency of Donald Trump. 
uh, the Lincoln Project, uh, holds accountable those who would violate their oaths to the Constitution and will put others before Americans. Who can they possibly have in mind? And their ads and social media campaigns to remove Trump are utterly brutal. We can recommend their podcast, Republicans Defeating Trump. It is quite the listen. Welcome to the bunker, Steve. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Good morning. How are you? Not bad. This is quite different from the bunker your president went to inspect in the middle of the uh, of the riots, I think. Um, there's an argument. We're going to be talking in massive depth about about where Trump's at and how you, how you can dislodge him a little later in the show. But there is an argument that Trump might not be quite so exposed if he hadn't made such a mess of coronavirus. This week, we've seen cases spiking in 39 states. The unlocking seems to be enormously unwise. And how how has this presidency got it so wrong? Is it all does it all stem from Trump's personality and his personal approach? Well, where to start, right? I mean, he is he is the most incompetent president in the history of the United States. And I, I say that without hyperbole. And when you look at his conduct during the pandemic and you look at what has come out of his mouth, they're the musings of an imbecile, an idiot. I don't say that to name call. I say that because these are the words that precisely describe the behavior in the English language. And there's no other words that are more direct than those. Mm. Um, He has presided over a weakening of the United States in three and a half short years that is hard to comprehend and imagine if you were to contemplate it from the last day of the presidency of Barack Obama. The most advanced scientific country in the world is the epicenter of coronavirus death and suffering. There's 150,000 dead Americans. There'll be 250,000 dead Americans by election day, about 325,000 by the New Year's. And to put that into perspective, the United States lost 400,000 killed in action during the entirety of the Second World War in the Atlantic and the Pacific theaters behind. We have an utterly shattered economy with 40 million people out of work. We saw the government assistance programs corrupted at a level that's just jaw-dropping with the receipts going to Kanye West, to Jared Kushner's companies while small businesses starved on the vine. Um, We have the leading infectious disease expert in the world, Dr. Anthony Fauci. The president hasn't met with him since June 2nd. And the White House is sending around information, opposition research, as it's called in the states, to discredit him as if he were a political opponent. And the reason is, is because he is trusted so much more than Trump is by the American people, and Trump is jealous of his approval numbers. It is a season of utter insanity and lunacy in the United States. We are in the consequences stage of the Trump presidency, which has brought tragedy, weakness, suffering, economic collapse at an epic level, and there is no chance for the country to begin to recover from this, to go through a season of renewal, unless and until Donald Trump is removed from power. And that's to say nothing of his sundering of the Western alliance, his assaults on the dignity of America's closest allies, his fetish for the world's autocrats, his inherent illiberalism, 
and his utter faithlessness, not just to his oath, but to the idea and ideal of the country, which is as perfect an idea and an ideal as there could be, though we have always been short of achieving it, and the work of each generation of Americans is to move closer to it. He is an abomination without compare, an embarrassment to the country, and the worst president that we have ever had. And there has never been an American charged with responsibility in an hour of crisis who has failed as utterly as this con man and huckster from New York City. Steve, tell us about the Lincoln Project. How, how did it come into being? Did you sit down and think, what would Lincoln think of this guy? He would have been appalled by him. Um, let's talk about Abraham Lincoln for just a, just a quick second. Um, he was the president of the United States during the bloodiest hour in the nation's history, the Civil War. 600,000 Americans were killed over five years. The country at that time was 25 million souls in the North, 9 million in the South, 5 million whites, 4 million slaves. It remains to this day one of the most violent per capita wars in human history. And at the end of that war in March, when Abraham Lincoln took the oath of office for the second time, he delivered his second inaugural address, which is one of Lincoln's four great speeches, three of them occurring as president. But the second inaugural, when he says, let us bind up the wounds of the nation to care for the widow and the orphan, with malice towards none and charity towards all. He was somebody who was described by a critic of his at the beginning of the war when he was elected and saw in Lincoln a backwoods barbarian, someone who was uneducated by traditional standards. And he said, the union is doomed. That man saw Lincoln for the last time in April, weeks before he was assassinated. And William Tecumseh Sherman, the great Union general, said after Lincoln's death, he said that he had met all the great men of the world, the kings and the emperors, the industrialists, but he had never met any man who possessed the qualities of greatness and kindness more so than Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was a unifier Trump is a divider who stoked a cold civil war in the country. Lincoln was also the first Republican president uh, and the second Republican nominee of a new political party that came into being to fight the scourge of slavery and to fight for human dignity. And so we think that it's an apt name for the work that we're involved in, which is trying to convince uh, a percentage of Republicans to vote for the first time, for many of them, a Democratic candidate for president and to join in a grand coalition, what I've called the coalition of the decent, to turn uh, this apostate out of office. And we are engaged in an effort now that has a couple of million members, has raised very close to $20 million and I think has captured the imagination of a lot of opponents of Trump as the group that has run the toughest work against him, has made the most effective arguments, and for the first time has been able to damage him politically. And we'll be involved in that work 
not just through the election, but until the hour that he's packed up and out of the White House and removed from political power. But it's not just Trump, it's Trumpism, the white nationalism, the ethnocentrism. America's a country founded not on blood and soil nationalism, but on an idea, an ideal, and a creed. And so we'll continue the work until Trumpism is gone. And what that means is the next incarnation of Trump that the Republican Party puts forward, his enablers, his collaborators in the Congress, they have all failed in their duty to preserve and protect and steward the American Constitution. And our work is to remove them from power, lock, stock and barrel. I mean, I think the work you've been doing is is incredible, and the 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 adverts um have I mean were absolute must see. They sort of you know went viral. Everyone around the world was sort of looking at them. But my anxiety is, um, I think it's great that you know Republicans are are, are kind of sending the message out. It's heartening to see that the poll numbers are tanking. But I have a horrible feeling that he that he still might get across the 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 line. I mean, do you do you feel like it's in the bag for Joe Biden no. or No. Yeah. Um I think that everybody needs to act as if Joe Biden were 10 points behind in the race. Now, the truth of the matter is when you look at Trump's numbers, the state of Michigan, for example, which was an important part of his electoral coalition and remember Donald Trump won by 78,000 votes in a fluke, if you will. There was a dynamic in the 2016 election that I think is really important to understand with regard to your question. Whomever the race was about between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was the person who was losing the campaign. And for 99% of the campaign, The race was about Donald Trump, and thus he was losing. That changed in the last 10 days when James Comey, the FBI director, released his letter about Secretary Clinton, and all of a sudden, the race intensified and became about her and her acts as opposed to Trump, and that was enough to put him over the top. That scenario won't develop with Joe Biden who frankly just doesn't carry the type of baggage that Secretary Clinton did. That being, that being said, when you look at Trump's numbers, which are a 38% approval level, you look at the national polls, I think that there is an undercount of Trump voters in the polling, mm. as there was in the Brexit polling, as yep. there was in the polling from a couple of years ago, because I think a lot of people who are legitimately aggrieved and are angry and feel culturally condescended to by the elites. They just would rather not talk about it. And they find their way to each other, but they just don't feel like hearing the criticism or frankly facing retribution in the workplace for being a Trump supporter. And so I think you have to look at that. You have to look at it carefully. The stakes are enormously high. And so I think everybody who is offended by this wretched period of history um, has anxiety, you know, that we could see four more years of this. And I and I think the anxiety for me is that the, the, the country won't be able to recover from four more years of this. Um, 
we are we are at a precarious hour. Steve, can I ask, does the choice of Biden uh, as a nominee by the Democrats, does that make make it an easier sell for you? Is it easier to convince moderate Republicans to vote for Biden than it would have been to vote for, let's say, Bernie Sanders? Oh, of course it would have. I mean, I've, I've said for a long time, and I, and I do think that understanding British and American politics and the way they orbit each other is an important dynamic here. And you can go back, just let's look at Margaret Thatcher and Thatcher begets Reagan. And you look at Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and Obama and Cameron. And, you know, Thatcher came to power before Reagan, but the movements are inexorably linked. You can look in 1983 with Mr. Foote, 1984 with Walter Mondale, uh, the 83 labor platform described as the longest suicide note in history and the Democratic platform that follows a year later, very similar. You see the rise of the new Democrats with Clinton and new labor with Blair. You see the affinity between a softer conservative party under Cameron and the centrism of uh, Barack Obama later on. And so I, I think for sure, when you look at this, the 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 populism of a Trump, the nationalism is going to defeat defeat any type of candidate who's in that socialism space. And here's the reason why. There, there's literally no one in America, and I don't I don't care what political party you're in, I, you know, from left-handed vegetarian socialists to Democrats, Republicans, independents, no party at all. There's nobody who goes to interact with government at a local level to get a dog license or a building permit or at a county level, a state level, a federal level, and walks out of that, going to get a driver's license and says, God, that was a great experience. I want to give these people more money and more power and control over my life. It's just the design flaw in all of this. And you look at the failure of government in this coronavirus case, it's a hard sell to if you're Bernie Sanders to go say, hey, we're going to put government in charge of everything. It's just not a message that's ever caught on in the United States. Now, that being said, we have 40 million unemployed people, $25 trillion in debt, the wealth distribution and income inequalities that we have, and you have a younger generation that's the largest demographically in American history, and you look out at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some other people, I don't know that that's necessarily, from my perspective, a static prediction. We may see the country move dramatically to the left in the years ahead, but right now, not yet. Steve, I want to ask you, um, it's fair to say Trump did not appear out of nowhere. Trump did not just pop out of a trap door from hell in smoke and brimstone. The Republican Party's culture for 20 years, the, the kind of total scorched earth dedication to winning and erasing bipartisanship, the Newt Gingrich era, the conspiracy, the birtherism, the shift into this kind of paranoid authoritarian style. That has been the culture of the modern Republican Party. And that's well, that was the kind of birthing pool for Trumpism. Republicans of, of the kind of Lincoln Project tradition, how are you going to combat that? You mentioned earlier on, it's not just Trump, it's Trumpism. What are you going to do about the fact that he has remade the party in his, in his image and there are people there who are absolutely wedded to him? 
Well, the, that party has to be defeated. It's irredeemable. It has to be burned to the ground. And the defeat has to be so large, so big, the repudiation so massive that the submission uh, to the will of the voters is so great that it disappears. And 10 years from now, the politicians that are alive that supported him will deny ever having heard his name before. I mean, that's what has to happen. Um, you know, there there has to be in a two party system, two healthy political parties. And the what what you're describing, I was a, you know, I would describe myself as, you know, what wing of the party did you come out of? Um, I was a Jack Kemp Republican. And and Jack Kemp, um, if you're unfamiliar with him, was the Republican vice presidential nominee for Bob Dole in 1996. He was a professional football player uh, for the Buffalo Bills, uh, Hall of Fame football player, but but he was extremely well known for marching with Dr. King, for being a civil rights advocate, for being about economic empowerment and opportunity. And his brand of Republicanism has gone extinct. That brand of republicanism was at war for a long, long time against Gingrichism and all the pernicious forces that you describe, culminating in the last couple of years with the overtly racist and race-baiting birther movement that launched Donald Trump's career. And the sad truth is, is that the bad guys won. You have a handful of extremely competent Republican governors who are no friends of Trump. Uh, the governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan, who's the governor of Maryland, Mike DeWine, the governor of the state of Ohio, who have performed extraordinarily well during this coronavirus pandemic outbreak. Um, every bit the peers and equals of uh, Andrew Cuomo, or Gavin Newsom in governing competence, but there's th literally, there's three of them left in, in elective office in the country. And so the, it's gonna be a long, long process, but the good news is, is, is Trump has on his best day, never been above a 46% approval level. It's down into the thirties right now and the numbers are collapsing because we're hitting the numbers where you're at about 200,000 deaths, pretty much everybody's going to know someone or be just one step removed from knowing someone who's died of coronavirus. And the schools aren't opening in September, the chaos in the country over all of this, the racial unrest, the cold civil war that Trump has stoked, the, the tinderbox we sit on top of with everyone at each other's throats. I think there's a real sense that it's time to take the exit ramp here before things get much worse. Steve, this is also fascinating. Your your moment of reckoning, though, is obviously predicated on a loss. And if there isn't a loss, what happens then? I say I got to learn all the words to O Canada immediately. <laughs> 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 you know. You'd be like Justin. Any room for for one more in there? <laughs> so let us in. Mm -hmm. um, no, I um, 
I mean, what's the fallout? Tell me what the fallout is of of Trump getting away with it. Well, I would um, step back for just a just a second. The fallout will be a disaster for all the people in the world who care about liberty and freedom. Because it will mean that the United States has quit the field. And there's a wonderful British historian, Niall Ferguson, who wrote a trilogy of books about Franklin Roosevelt and his role of his role as commander in chief during the during the Second World War. And um, the books are very favorable to FDR's role. Um, and he was a, a strategic genius, really, without without compare. And you had the entire combined staffs of the British and American military wanted to see a cross-channel invasion in 43, would have been a disaster. Churchill wanted to attack through through the Aegean, through Greece, which would have been a disaster. FDR was peerless as a wartime commander, but he was also the architect of what came after the war. When he met with Churchill in 1940 in the North Atlantic, Churchill came with a mission of getting America into the war. And the document that was signed, the Atlantic Charter there, was really FDR's vision of what the world would look like after the war. We're at the end of that period. And when Roosevelt was in the White House, he would frequently have Mackenzie King, who was the Canadian prime minister, down. And they would uh, commiserate about uh, Churchill's tirelessness and relentlessness and the exhaustion he caused FDR when he would uh, when he would come and live in the White House for weeks and months at a time. Mackenzie King and Roosevelt talking late into the night, FDR says to King, he says that he has no ambition that what he's envisioning will last forever. He just wants it to last for as long as every person who is alive on the day the war is won is still alive. And we're about there. We're, we're, we're at the hour where the last of the men who stormed the beaches in Normandy are with us. We're, we're at the hour where the last of the survivors of the death camps are with us. And what it would mean is the end of the American century. What it would mean is the rise of an authoritarian superpower as the world's leading economy and ultimately as the world's leading military power. It, it would mean that the world that we have lived in, despite all of its difficulties, all of the distance between what we should be and can be and are, it will mean that that world that emerged out of that war is ended and we're passing through the hinge of history into a new era, which is unknown, uncertain and more dangerous than what came before it. And I think that when you evaluate the Trump presidency, and I think that this is true, though it's not as lethal as as is the response to coronavirus in the United States. This is this is true of Brexit also. There was a real lack of imagination in the United States about the capacity of someone like Donald Trump to bring real tragedy. And we're there. And it will only get worse. He will be unrestrained. 
he will be validated and we will see an assault on the remaining institutions, the concept of the rule of law that will look something like the German blitzkrieg through Poland in 1939. It will be awful. And of course, you look at what's happening in Poland, you know, the elections we just had in Poland. I think you're so right. A bigger concern is, is not just that the, the, the havoc wreaked in America, but the, 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 the octopus tentacles that go across other demo- so-called democracies now. I don't know how long well, it'll be. Well, to that point, you look at the Polish elections, another uh, ill omen. And we're also coming to the end of the Merkel era in Germany. And what we will see, I think, is a very rapid deterioration of the center-right German coalition, a uh, collapse of the CDU's political power, and a very rapid rise of a far-right German nationalist political movement. Uh, We were seeing this all over Europe, all over the world. And when the President of the United States is unable to muster a word of support for freedom-loving people, whether they be in Hong Kong or anywhere else in the world. What that does is it gives license to the autocrats, and 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 I think you just it's in you you stand back and you try to comprehend the moment that President Xi talked to Donald Trump about his oppression of his Muslim minority population and their imprisonment in concentration camps. And Trump told him he thought it was a good idea. Steve, once Trump is gone, let's be optimistic. Um, will you have to look at constitutional reform as well? Will you have to look at limiting the president's power, um, maybe beefing up the impeachment procedures? Because I, I have to tell you, looking at it as an outsider, you know, the idea that a president is not impeached for interfering with a judicial procedure, even as he tweets to interfere with the judicial procedure, it it looks like a situation that's through the looking glass. Well, for sure, we have gone full banana republic in this country over the last over the last four years. And the assaults on the rule of law are the chief evidence of that and the utter corruption of the attorney general and of Trump and the interference in everything that you just mentioned is as astonishing as it is appalling. Now, constitutionally, I'm not sure that you need to amend the constitution. However, we do need to do some things. Um, There needs to be a 2021 Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act. There has to be a national movement to secure our elections, to protect the election process from hostile foreign powers and interference. Mm. When when you look at the totality of where we are as as a country, we're going to need to substantially strengthen ethics laws. We're going to need to substantially look at every area of Trump's behavior. But the the astonishing thing about this moment in time, and it turns out it took 240 plus years to figure it out, what the design flaw in the American system was. What, What was it that the founders, what that genius cluster, right, didn't didn't see, didn't see. The the entire American system of government is built on checks and balances. Three co-equal branches of government 
keeping an eye out on the excesses of the other branch. And so Mm -hmm. the pendulum has swung completely out of whack with regard to executive power and the power of the presidency. And for sure, it should swing back. We've seen going back to Watergate in 1974, from Gerald Ford forward, we have seen a swinging of the pendulum from 1980 forward, from the lowest nadir of presidential power to an excessive imperial presidency. That's got to swing back. But the, the one thing that would never have been anticipated is the voluntary subordination and submission by one co-equal branch of government and its members to another co-equal political branch. And so these senators who position themselves as Trump's hostages are some of the highest elected officials in the land with substantial constitutional authority, substantial institutional power, and they have completely abdicated their responsibility to keep a check on Trump. And this is the thing that no one ever could have conceived. Going back to the founding of the country, it is, it is against human nature that one group of politicians would voluntarily surrender their power and authority to another politician for no other reason than they don't want to get a mean tweet or a nickname bestowed on them. It's just an appalling <laughs> moment of, of yeah. cowardice and weakness. And we, we have an enormous cowardice problem in the country politically. And no one is asking these people to storm Omaha Beach or Gold or Sword or Juno. It's stand up for what you said you believed in and be willing to take the mean tweet. He's tweeted mean things about me. Trust me, you'll live to see the sunrise another day. Everything will be okay. Steve, just finally, before we move on, I mean, this is a British podcast. Uh, We don't often find ourselves on the same side of the fight as you, but we're happy to be on the same side. How can British listeners help without getting dragged into a Senate inquiry about election meddling from big podcast one day? We pray for the beneficence of our British cousins. We may ask you to take us back before much much longer. (laughs) It's not putting the queen on the money again. It was, I, um, I was, I I hope everybody's had a chance if you haven't, it's truly, it's a work of genius, but the Broadway play Hamilton and, um, and, um, when King George the third does his song, it says, you'll be back. Um, he was just, he was just (laughs) off on the timing, maybe. (laughs) Well, you have our best wishes, if, if, if not any material help. I'll try and persuade my American-born wife to send you her Trump check. Man. That'll do something. No, I, no on, a, on, a serious, on a serious point, um, obviously there's, there's a lot of Americans in, um, in the UK and um, for all of your American friends, um, beyond them to vote. They got to vote. Um, they can donate to the campaigns. They can be involved. There are things they can do. Get involved. Um, if you have an American friend and you are within within sound of my voice, um, you know, make sure that they fill out their absentee ballot and mail it in. Make sure they do something to repudiate this. Um, every American you know has an obligation to vote in this election. They might have been in the UK for 20 years, feel estranged from the daily rhythms of the country. They may even feel more British than American at this point. They have a U.S. passport. They're a U.S. citizen. They can vote. Make sure your American friends vote. 
Now, who's cancelling whom? Last week, 153 prominent artists, including J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie and Margaret Atwood, signed a letter to Harper's Magazine warning of an intolerant climate and a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, a movement dubbed cancel culture. And the letter provoked, unsurprisingly, an outcry which said it shouldn't have been written at all, followed by the inevitable rejoinders that people were trying to cancel those who complained about cancelling. Is cancel culture real? Is the idea just a cudgel for the political right to use against the identity politics left? Is there any reasonable accommodation between between the two viewpoints. Alexandrea, what, what do you think? Is the notion of cancel culture become one of those those terrible cliches that doesn't actually mean anything anymore? It's just a, a buzz phrase and a cudgel. Um, I, I think ultimately it can be both. It can be something of substance and something that is weaponized. Um, I, I, I mean, I always think the basic rules are actually not hard. Uh, don't be a dick. You know, if, if yeah. ever you have a choice between shaping a statement, shaping your behavior towards someone in a way that's extra cruel or in a way that's extra kind, err on the side of kindness. And uh, I imagine uh, 80% of the problem goes away. Mm -hmm. Dorian of the podcast has written a great piece for Unheard on what he calls the chronocentric failings of the cancel culture debate. The Uh belief that only what's happening now matters that the past is lesser and we're the final word. And consequently, what we think now about what's gone before is is, is, is the last word. But of course, people have been arguing about who's put themselves beyond the pale for years. I mean, what, why now? Why is it suddenly the hot button now? I think because it's it's so much on a hair trigger. Um, there is a, I'm going to make a word up, there is an instantaneity to social media. That's a real um, word. That, you didn't need to make it, it up, it is a real word. Right. Oh, yeah. There's an instantaneity to social media, and I think you can be cancelled very quickly. You can even be cancelled by omission. Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, someone sent me a tweet uh, about a Facebook post of an organization that I occasionally work with saying, um, what do you think of, of this? It's terrible, isn't it? Now, I wasn't on social media at the time. I wasn't checking Twitter. Two hours later, I come onto Twitter to find an entire thread of people saying, well, he didn't even bother to reply, so he must be okay with this. Um, And so, you know, you can be be tried in absentia and be found (laughs) guilty. And and once that that wave begins to gain momentum, there's very little you can do because everything, all your protestations, you know, can be used to confirm... Uh, you know, your wickedness. Hmm. Aisha, the, the argument from the left is that cancel culture doesn't exist. It's the, it's the consequences of your own actions. It's people uh, p- placing square, scare quotes around what is essentially kind of you know, your own comeuppance. But, you know, there are real examples of unjustness that, that come out. I spotted one last week, uh, a communications chief at Boeing who had to step down for writing a sexist article uh, 33 years previously when he was in the Air Force. I mean, it was a sexist article. It was 33 years ago. Is there any way of getting to a halfway point? between just letting things go and being kind of witch finder general about everything. What, what is this nuance? What, like a third way? Is that what you're <laughs> It's a word I've just invented, yes. <laughs> um, well, look, 
I think we have to be honest, cancel culture does exist and it's existed for a long time. It's not new. Um, Organisations, corporations have had the right to associate or disassociate themselves with people who are, in their view, they have a good reputation or if they have a bad reputation. You know, history is littered with, for example, big sports sponsorship deals or beauty sponsorship deals. You know, people break away from from people. So this is not like a new Mm -hmm. thing. But where I think there's a real difference is um, accountability is incredibly important. And the bigger the platform you have and the more privilege you have in terms of, you know, whether you have, you know, a well-read column or you have lots and lots of followers, I think you you can't just say what you want. And that's just common sense and the the Alex don't be a dick thing. But where I think the the cancel culture is having an effect is on women. Mm. So a lot of people, and, and, you know, Steve himself said, and lots of other people are saying, oh, well, suck it up. You know, if people send horrible tweets to you, it's just just the way it is. Mm. But that actually does have a very, um, that can have a real chilling effect, particularly on women, when the types of threats you get or the types of, it's not just, hey, I disagreed with your article on X, Y, and Z. It's you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, you deserve to be raped, I'm coming around to kill Mm. you. I mean, that, believe it or not, really affects your mental health. That makes you censor every time you type because you don't want the the pylon you don't want the abuse and i just do think we have become so a couple of you know months ago we had somebody like caroline flack who you know tragically took her life now we don't know if it was entirely to do with social media but from what we understand some of it was and we're all like oh my god hashtag be kind be kind let's think of everybody famous people have feelings too i think no matter how famous you are you're still a human you still do have you know like emotions about this stuff and i i personally from what i've observed it's not to say that men can't get cancelled of course they can but I, I do feel the type of cancelling that women get is so visceral. It's always steeped in sort of violence mm. or pornography mm. or that kind of thing and shaming. And I, I do think it does have an effect. I'm, I'm, I, I, do, I think a third way is probably the solution on this. But I think just to, to, to deny its existence is, is, a real mis- is, is wrong. Steve, the, the cancel culture debate is absolute catnip to Fox News, and Trump has been alluding to it himself when he's talking about, uh, you know, the you know he alludes to the the the, uh, the mob and trying to tear down American institutions. The idea that there's like thought control out there, you see it in an awful lot of kind of Republican and far right outrider cartoons. Uh, the idea that you know everyone's being silenced, you can't say anything anymore. They hate freedom. How useful is this to Trump? How useful is is the fact that cancel culture is out there to Trump? Well, I think um, I think that there are a couple of parts to this. Um, so first off is to recognize that grievance, real or manufactured, is the high octane jet fuel of Trumpism. Right? No grievance, no Trumpism. So Fox News is in the grievance business and. The greatest example of that in recent years is the Fox concocted war on Christmas, where Mm. supposedly you can't say Merry Christmas anymore. And I just like (laughs) to prove otherwise. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas in July. You can. can Well, as as a Muslim on the call, I'm I'm just I'm 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 canceling you all now. Um, um, So. You know, so so it's mostly nonsense. Now, you have a debate in the country which is, you know, taken off around these Confederate memorials, um, most of which 
about 95% of them were built in the 1920s after the First World War when there was a movement in the country with so many returning black soldiers who believed that maybe having fought for freedom in Europe, that some would be extended to them in America. And there was an enormous backlash. And every time in the history of America where there's been progress on civil rights, there's always been a regression and a backlash to it. And so we're in a backlash to the first back black president period, right, in Trump. And we were in a backlash, right, to early civil rights movements in the 1920s. It's when all these statues come up. And they had a political meaning in the 1920s. They have a political meaning in the 2020s. And it's totally appropriate for them to come down. No one's talking about removing a memorial in a, in a cemetery for, the, for war dead. Um, the second part of it is, is that there is an aspect to this, and I'm deeply sympathetic to the letter that J.K. Rowling and Salman Rushdie and the other signatories were there. It's a real thing. There is a creeping illiberalism on both the left and the right, and we won't find very often justice being delivered from the middle of a social media mob. And the idea, I think, that, that, that's pertinent here is it's no one is saying that you should be immunized from offensive language. Um, should you be forced out of your job in 2020 because you wrote a article about opposition to women in combat forces 33 years ago? You know, my, my vote would be no, you shouldn't. Um, that there should be some proportionality. Um, to the administration of how you deal with this stuff. But, but when you get into that, there are unacceptable ideas. And I'm not talking about fringe conspiracy theories. I'm talking about the debate that exists between divergent opinion and a free society. The idea that there are some ideas that are deemed too controversial, too offensive. The idea that we have college kids that are at $80,000 a year universities who have to receive trigger warnings before they can start talking about um, you know, something in a, in a classroom that might give offense to someone, I think is insanity. And I think speaks to a, to a moral and material weakness in Western society that's just disturbing. Um, we need vigorous debate. We need a competition of ideas. And the offensiveness meter of, 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 of hearing someone else's idea needs to come down. Now, what Aisha just said about the abuse that people receive on social media, and particularly women, just it really resonated with me. And I think it's one of the best articulations I've ever heard by any person in a few minutes talk about something like that. I mean, the, the abuse that people receive um, for stating an idea on social media is just, it's unbelievable. It's epic. And I, you know, and I think to, to the point that she said, hey, you got to get past the mean tweet. I, I think if you're a U.S. senator or a member of Congress, that comes with the job, right? You got you to gotta have a, an, an allergy to being affected by abusive tweets. Um, that being said, you know, even for me, it's taken a long time to get there, you know, to have your hide thickened. And there's just tremendous abusiveness um, on how people talk to each other because we've eliminated the ability, well, we've eliminated the, uh, the concept, right, of, you know, when you interact with people, you're doing it face-to-face, -face, right? So hidden behind the computer screen, 
Um, the ugliness that emanates from people is just like extraordinary and disgusting and disgraceful. And so this is it's a complicated issue. And that brings us to the end of a barnstorming edition of The Bunker. I'm sure you'll agree. Thank you to our guest, Steve Schmidt, for coming in. And you know, we won't always be on the same side as you. We're a bunch of lefty liberals here, but we're on the same side now. So we wish you all the best. Well, thank you. And please do come on again sometime before all of this is wrapped up. It'd be, it'd be my pleasure to do so. Fantastic. And thanks to, to Aisha and Alex, our regulars. That's the end of this week's Bunker. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out. And if you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are some shout-outs now. Hello and many thanks from me to Ivona Hewitt, Jenny Banayi, Dr. T, Fiona Coyle and Sally Kostik. And thank you and best wishes from me to Nancy Pickering, Rosaline McCarthy, Raymond Halpenny, Neil Archibald and Edward Tendem. And finally, hello and thanks from me to Loz Pycock, Shane Connan, Tatiana Ventura, Susan Salavara and Barry Nags. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika and Alex Andre. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.